brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. Midi clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Who's got the kind of charisma that the boys prefer? Who's hot and you know that she knows it, that's her? She's like a summer sky, a slice of cherry pie, the rarest butterfly. Overly confident, morbidly obese woman. So there's going to be, I think, a lot to talk about when it comes to some of the, uh, oh, I don't even want to get into it yet. I feel like that clip just sort of lines it up for some of that conversation. And I just want to focus so much on how delightful this show is, even though it is so totally, uh, you know, like it has this layer of internalized misogyny inside of it that I think needs to be discussed, but I don't. Well, you really uncovered the internalized misogyny of, of Tina Fey. Of, yeah. It's mostly of Tina Fey. And I think, you know, we have to look at everything in the scope of the time in which it came out to some degree, but there is definitely, there, there are some things happening. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I hope she's come beyond that, but, um, but well, you know, before we'll, we get we'll too far, <laughs> before we get too far into the, into your dissertation on the internalized oh, misogyny. I hate Fey. that I have to go there. That's not what the show is. It's let's let's introduce ourselves. Hello, everybody, and welcome to TV Watch Repeat, a podcast brought to you by The Dip. We are two TV lovers who are set to revisit some of the most iconic, memorable, and ooh, I didn't have one prepped for this. Berg. 
nerds TV pilot of all time. I have a lot of, oh God, the blurg, the nerds. I, I, I will get into that. Night I am, I am Allison and I am joined by the Dip co-founder and CEO, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hello. And today we we're talking about the 2006 pilot of 30 Rock. It is, well, this, I just learned this moments before we started recording. It is currently streaming on Netflix. I watched it on Peacock because I don't sleep on Peacock. <laughs> and supposedly it's also on Hulu. Yeah. Well, I don't actually, I'm not sure if it's still there anymore. The Netflix okay. deal might've got it, but it was on Hulu as of a few months ago. At the it really, you could, you can't avoid watching 30 Rock. Yeah. And thank God, because this is <laughs> one of those fantastic rewatches that, it's 20 minutes of just delight, you know, like it is so well-written. It is so snappy. Uh, the cast is fantastic. Everybody has so much chemistry. It's unreal. Mm. And it's one of, it's just a classic. And I feel like it coming onto Netflix makes me so happy. Cause I think that means a whole new generation of people will be watching it and guaranteed. We're going to start seeing the teens be like, why has nobody ever talked about 30 rock? It's been on Netflix before. Has it really? Yeah, I think it was just one of those things. It's number where one right now, so everybody is everybody is currently really into it. Yeah, I think, um, and I'm I'm super excited to talk about it too because I was reading a lot about it, and this isn't not to get into the history quite yet, but Alec Baldwin says even when the writing was bad, he says even an anemic. 30 Rock is still better than any other show in terms of writing. Mm -hmm. And I really was like, that really hit me because I was like, that is so true. The show is so sharp and unlike any other show, it really is. So I'm excited to get into it. And I think we should just let's dive in. You want to talk about sources? Yeah. And a reference? Yeah, sure. So I have a Rolling Stone feature from 2013, The Last Days of 30 Rock from Cinema Blend in 2018. Tina Fey talks about 30 Rock from Mental Floss in 2015, 30 Fun Facts about 30 Rock from The New Yorker in 2006, Shows About Shows from Vulture in 2010, The Day Comedy One, and finally a Vanity Fair feature from 2009 uh, called What Tina Wants. So it was a and lot. And that's where you learned a lot. And that's where I, I learned. I learned a lot. And then I watched the episode afterwards and I was like, oh God, this all makes so much sense. <laughs> but so let's talk a little bit about, you know, the show at the beginning and, you know, when it premiered and some things that were going on. So 30 Rock is obviously inspired by Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live premiered on October 11th, 1975, establishing itself as this cultural touchstone and a rare must-see series in that 11.30 p.m. time slot. And over the next few decades, the series would be regularly autopsied and scrutinized, but never parodied until 31 years later when two series decided to take the late night show on on its own network, NBC. So on one side, we have Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip which was a drama that chronicled the behind the scenes machinations of Saturday Night Live, uh, but you know, new name, of course. And it was brought to you by the heaviest of hitters, who is Aaron Sorkin. And he had just come off a successful seven year run of the West Wing. And not to mention this show involved a friend, Matthew Perry played the brilliant head writer that fights the corporate man. So clearly this was the show. This was the thing that was on the covers of magazines or, you know, get that featured story. Everybody's talking about Studio 60 is going to be the next big thing. I love it when he does that. It is going to be a great show. This is our 20th season and we're very proud of that. We're live in five, four, three, two. My fellow Americans. I'm here to speak to you tonight about a very serious subject. Well, let's stop this. My this legacy. 
legacy is the uh, impact one leaves behind. Let's stop it, Tom. And then on the other side, we have 30 Rock, this quirky 30-minute comedy from a woman who had actually been that head writer herself, Tina Fey. And though Tina had become a star with Weekend Update and then her turn um, on you know, Mean Girls obviously brought her a bunch of really good press and everything, 30 Rock still seemed to be a huge underdog because it was a show about writing, about inside baseball, and it was produced by Lorne Michaels, who, yes, brought us things like Wayne's World, but uh, also brought us things like Night at the Roxbury. He did? So, mm-hmm. so I did not know that. Which I one? guess I should have. I I should have put them together because they're both both origined from SNL, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I I it was like that's like something that's in the very very back of my brain, but I guess I never really attached him to those films. A lot of projects that involve SNL stars, their their first one out is usually uh, actually produced by Lord Michaels. Yeah, so I mean even, to this day, still yeah, like, King of Staten Island was was produced by Lord Michaels. Yeah. Uh, So these odds seemed to be in Studio 60's favor, so much so that, you know, NBC executive Kevin Riley even had to qualify to the press about why NBC decided to get both series, despite seeing, quote, the problem coming from a mile away. As he said, but these are very particular artists who write what they care about. Tina is more madcap and Aaron is exploring issues and character dynamics and has a real romance at the center. And Tina saw her disadvantage saying to the press, it's just bad luck for me that my first attempt at primetime, I'm going against the most powerful writer in television. But only one came out on top because no matter how many accolades Aaron Sorkin has collected on his mantelpiece, Tina had one thing up on Aaron. She was actually funny. And as it turns out, when you write a show Drag. about comedy, it's best to actually be funny. So you had things, and I watched Studio 60, and one of the things that the thing that always drove me nuts about it, and I think this is the reason why it never really translated, they would show pieces of the sketch comedy from these series, and it would be terrible. And this is supposed to be the best show in the context of Studio 60, right? This is supposed to be an excellent, excellent series. So they would have jokes like, at schools today, all the kids are diagnosed with dyslexia, ADD, ADHD. In my day, you were just stupid. And that would be one of their big, hilarious jokes, which it's not that funny at all. But that has nothing on 30 Rock's fart doctor, (laughs) which I think is part of the charm of 30 Rock is that the sketches are pretty bad, but that's not like it is sort of sending itself up. You know, it, it is parroting the worst sketches that you see on SNL that just make you groan. did I say you could have? One. And how many do you see here? Um, four. Save a little money for the rest of us, Frank. You can't spend a bunch of money on bear suits that are only going to be seen for like 25 seconds. Liz, nobody's going to believe that a killer robot can get his ass kicked by one bear. It doesn't make any sense. You're trying to bring logic to the robot bear sketch? You can't have four bears. So... It just helped it win out. And Studio 60 in the end actually had no chance because Aaron Sorkin is just not funny. How long was Studio 60 on? I've never seen it. One season. Okay. So it came in so strong. It was Bradley Whitford was in it too. Mm. And Sarah Paulson was in it. You had all these people that you were like, oh, this is definitely going to be the next thing. Uh, but it was just, it fell flat. It, 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 it took itself far too seriously. And at the end of the day, SNL is just a 
crazy place. Like it's a crazy place full of very funny people. It's not full. And sure, there's plenty of behind the scenes drama. You know, if you read about SNL, there's, there's a lot of really good stuff about it, but it's not this, there's always this overlaying uh, ridiculousness associated with SNL that was not in studio 60. So mm-hmm. studio 60 only got that one season 30 rock got eight. Yeah. But the weird thing is, is though, that the odds should never have been stacked against Tina because when she swings, she really doesn't miss because she aced her first movie script, which was Mean Girls. Right. She aced her first TV pilot script, which was 30 Rock. And on SNL, she aced her role in Weekend Update, however unexpected she was at first. So I want to talk a little bit about her tenor on the show before we kind of go on to 30 Rock. So despite being the most recognized female SNL player since Gilda Radner, Tina, who had grown up on Carol Burnett, Mary Tyler Moore, Larry Sanders, had started her tenure on the show as a writer. And within two years, she was promoted to head writer and then was asked by Lorne Michaels to co-anchor Weekend Update with Jimmy Fallon in 2000 as Lorne Michaels recognized chemistry between the two comedians. At the time, many people were like, what are you doing, Lauren? Who is this person that you're bringing? Like, she's not a cast member. Nobody knows who she is. And some people even said, I thought that she was just maybe sleeping with Lauren and that's how she got the the part. But either way, everybody kind of also looked at her and said, this doesn't look like somebody either that would be on TV, of course, because this is a lot of, again, we will, I will get into this later. <laughs> a lot of the reporting surrounding Tina. You're just teeing her. it up right now. I'm just teeing it up. Uh, so one producer, SNL, Steve Higgins, talked about her saying, Uh, When she got here, she was kind of goofy looking, but everyone had such a crush on her because she was so funny and bitingly mean. How did she go from ugly duckling into swan? She has such a German work ethic, even though she's half Greek. It's superhuman. The German thing of this will happen. I am going to make it happen. It is a sheer force of will. So within two years of this, she was dreaming up a pilot about backstage dynamics at a Bill O'Reilly-esque news show. Mm -hmm. But when Kevin Riley convinced her to write about what she knew, she switched up the concept to be a comedy series about a head writer at an SNL type show, despite being skeptical that, you know, whether people would want to watch a show about writing. So, but either way it moves forward. It was called rock center at first. And oddly, 10 years later, Aaron Sorkin would create his own series about the backstage goings on in a newsroom with the newsroom. The newsroom. <laughs> so it seems like they just sort of traded. They both found where they needed to be. Like I wouldn't Sorkin... say that the newsroom was good. <laughs> oh, I liked the first season. Hmm. Is that, is that controversial? No, it's not controversial. You can like what you like. I, um, but I do think like Sorkin does like, he should live in like the series. Like you said, he is not a comedian. Yeah. And that, that was, this was not the space for him. So the newsroom makes way more sense for him and Tina being over here parroting, you know, write what you know. That's what they always say. And here she is. I can't imagine Tina having to take on like, you know, the, like the crisis in the Middle East in a TV show, like that just wouldn't make sense to me. Right. And not to say that like she couldn't, but it's just like, it would be such a waste of her, her comedy chops to not have her be funny about something. I mean, I think the the best way to describe her is the way somebody did by saying she's madcap. Like that is yeah. her comedy. <laughs> and I just don't think that you can put that on serious issues quite as much. That said, like, it's not like Bill O'Reilly's show is the most serious of shows. Uh, so she got a little bit more excited about it once she realized that she could get Tracy Morgan involved. So she thought of this as I can create a show that's at the triangle of race, gender, and class. And she had another ace in her pocket too with Alec Baldwin. 
Though actors like John Hamm tried out for the role of Liz Lemon's mentor, Tina always had her eye on Alec, who is basically an honorary SNL cast member, having hosted the show a record 17 times. And that doesn't even include all of the Trump appearances that he made that weren't official hosting stints. So, but I should say also that Tina thought that Alec was an ace in her pocket. So Alec had also at the same time been pitching a show to FX, but it had no guarantee of pickup. But he ultimately agreed to sidebar that project to join 30 Rock after being told he could have a three-day work week and after being not told about the competing Sorkin project, which he would have been much more hesitant to join if he had heard about it. So Mm -hmm. And it was a strange leap for Baldwin at the time. And, and you know, he still was getting good attention for all his roles in, in the movies. He had The Cooler, The Aviator. He was in Pearl Harbor, you know, but he was a realist at the time too. He said, he quote, he knew the movie thing was going to wind down. You get your shot in that business. And if the movies don't make money, you get demoted to Indie Land where you earn 10% of what you do in the studio business. But that said, he wasn't necessarily jazzed about his t- return to, to TV and particularly a show that was called an underdog. So he said, I wish you could know when I look back just how terrified I was. There's this cliche of if this doesn't work, I'm dead. For every Jimmy Spader who goes from movies to TV and scores, there's ones that don't work out. And then it's tough to dig yourself out of that rut. So I had to put all of my faith in Lauren. And you know, one thing I do love when I read interviews with celebrities and they talk about other celebrities and, and use Jimmy names. and yeah, Jimmy, which means that everybody calls James Spader, Jimmy, right? I know. That's just such a fun little quote. I, it actually like, took a moment for me to put together like Jimmy Spader. I don't know if I know him. <laughs> and then I was like, well, there's James Spader. I wonder if he's related. <laughs> yeah, there are certain people like that. Like um, uh, Sandra Bullock, everybody calls her Sandy, Sandy in interviews and everything. It just, I'm like, I'm surprised. Annie Hathaway. Oh, Annie. Yes, exactly. Do you think that when they meet that she's just like, call me Annie? Or do people so, just know? I think that she goes by Annie. She actually talked about that on Jimmy Fallon recently, like within the last six months about how literally not one person in her life calls her Anne. So that's on us, you guys. That is on us. Let's say you're doing a movie with Anne Hathaway for the first time. You've never met her before. It's Annie though. Right. But do you know that? Does somebody tell you ahead of time or do you say like, oh, hi, nice to meet you, Anne. And she says, no, no, no. Just call me Annie. I think she would probably do that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is tough. You don't know how to, you don't know how to juggle that because you also already know that she goes by Annie, but you don't want to be presumptuous that you're in that circle that can call her Annie, you know? Right. Interesting. Only person that can't call her Annie is James Franco. Oh, burn 2011 Oscars. Isn't that burn? Yeah. Oh, anyway, well, Baldwin was actually a natural in this role, though uh, Faye will not admit that he was inspired by Lauren Michaels. Alex said he used him to help uh, him explore this friendship between the two main characters that he said was somewhere between Mary Tyler Moore and Lou Grant and Han Solo and Princess Leia. What are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry. Are you on some subconscious level seeing this as me toying with your manhood? Of course I am. I invented that. Boca 2002, you've seen the tapes? What? No, I, I just... You are being coached by me. I'm sorry, Jack, I have to take this. Huh. So, unlike that latter couple, there would never be any romance ever. And that was established pretty early on. Thank God. Thank I do God. Remember, I rewatched this uh, during the pandemic. And there was a season, and I think it was an early season, like season two or something, where it seemed like they were trying to hint at something. And it was so upsetting. It was extraordinarily upsetting. So 
I loved their relationship and would have been really disappointing. It would have been really disappointing if they had gotten together or even tried to get together. I mean, we've seen that fail so many TV shows in the past. And I think that it works so well that they were just friends and yeah. So Alex says professionally, Jack is a prototype of several GE executives, but in his personal life, he's Lauren Michaels. As I always say, Lauren is someone who has a tuxedo in the glove compartment of his car. And mm. Lauren is a friend and I admire Lauren, but we do stick it to Lauren a lot. An additional inspiration also was Gene Hackman in the Royal Tenenbaums, which is interesting because Alec Baldwin provided the narration for that film. Mm. And then there's Jenna. <sighs> So Jane Krakowski might have had made that role iconic, but it initially belonged to Rachel Rachel Dratch. Dratch. I had no idea about this. Oh my God. It was such a thing. It was such a thing. So NBC changed the role saying that they needed quote, a sitcom actress versus a quote, comedy actress for the role, since it wouldn't be just a series of sketches. Mm -hmm. And Dratch herself called that a party line in an interview with New York magazine. So Tina had to deliver the quote wrenching news as Lauren Michaels called it. Uh, and Tina knew though, if I had said I quit, they would have been like, okay, bye. So she had to agree with this to this, no matter what, but she also saw the silver lining in the decision, moving Rachel to an admittedly short lived role that involved her playing dozens of different roles. And Dratch was excited about the move until all the press got in the way. So as she told New York magazine, it was, I was actually really psyched about it because it sounded really unique, but then the media kind of ran with this quote demotion thing. And that was kind of a bummer, but whatever, I'm over it. And Jane Krakowski for her part also got dragged into it. She said, there is so much publicity about it, which wasn't easy for me and really wasn't easy for Rachel. But the swap allowed Faye to write Jenna as a much more sinister character. Oh yes, I love cats. I used to have two cats, but then I moved to this place with hardwood floors. So we had to put them down. Tina called the Dratch, uh, the Dratch role a failed experiment because I looked to because I took Dratch who is inherently sweet and said let's write her the opposite have that cartoon eyed person playing a diva and throwing fits and it was one layer too many for what the show needed so what do you think it would have been like with Dratch as Jenna well I watched the unaired pilot Mm -hmm. and to me it's interesting that you just say like to have her play a diva because I didn't get that from the clips that I saw of her. She was very much like talking about how excited she was that she just got an apartment on Jane street in the West village and, and how exciting it was to be living in New York. Josh, please set yourself for overreaction. Hey, what happened to your head? This guy is falling. Listen, do you have a pair of dress pants or like a skirt or something I could borrow? Thank you, Lee. Oh, I got that apartment. The two bedroom on Jane Street? Yeah, I had to pay a sick deposit because it's a co-op. But I'm psyched. I mean, I'm living in New York. I have my own TV show. I mean, dreams do come true, right? So I maybe I just didn't, we didn't see that in the pilot. But I, I think at the end of the day, I think that the way they utilized Rachel Dratch was better because I think her coming, popping up as these quirky characters throughout the whole series was just like, is she so good at that? Well, it wasn't throughout the whole series. It kind of stopped after a few episodes. Okay. So it looks like I have all of her lists or all of her episodes. She was in a bunch of season ones as all different characters. And then um, in season five and during the live show, she played another character. And then in season six. Yeah. So they, they definitely sort of 
sidelined her after a while because yeah. I think I think it became one of those things where you know if you have like a running gag I think a running gag in a sitcom is very hard to continue like especially if you're trying to commit to it for like every single episode and we even saw this with like South Park you know they had oh my god we killed Kenny and they had to do it every episode to the point where I believe they dropped it after a while for a little bit or they would just kind of shoehorn it in and just be like oh my mm-hmm. god we killed Kenny and like move on or whatever so it's hard to commit to that yeah especially for a show that I think has so many moving pieces I read at one point uh, in my research that there are 10 jokes per minute yeah. that you cannot sometimes like you can't have too many jokes because then suddenly everything's going to go over people's heads. Because if you are an audience member watching the show and almost feel like you have to do work to pick up on things, it's just not going to work. So I do think like, I, I mean, I love Tina Fey and her friendship with Rachel Dratch. So I'm happy to see that she at least was able to stay around for the first season, but you know, at the end of the day, I think Jane Krakowski, like you said, just made the role so iconic. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was watching, I caught myself watching clips of just like the best of Jenna Maroney. Also, her name was, uh, what was it? Jenna. She had a different name. It was not Jenna Maroney. Jenna DiCarlo. And they kind of like, I think in, in the pilot, we'll play the clip. The dressing rooms for the girly show. Jenna DiCarlo gets the best dressing room because she's the star. It has a couch and a microwave and a private bathroom to be used by no one but her. Stars. They're just like us. So Rachel Dratch was, was Jenna DiCarlo. DiCarlo. And that mm-hmm. was too Italian for Jane Krakowski. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, but, and she's a perfect foil for Tracy Morgan too. And, and let's talk about Tracy. So, uh, playing him, Tracy says playing him is like being Jack Nicholson in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I get to be crazy every day, every week on TV. I didn't have to do it in real life. No more. I get that crazy. I get to do that craziness on TV. Tracy's had his problems in the last few years. I am a Jedi. I am a Jedi. Because it is sort of unclear where the lines blur between it really Tracy Morgan and Tracy Jordan. All the reports indicate that the real Tracy is sweeter, but a little bit more subdued. And Tina says that the ideas for Tracy come from observing him and, quote, heightening it by about five notches. Hmm. But he does have snakes. He owns snakes. He owns snakes. Yeah. So that that part is true. And he's also friends with Grizz and Dot Com. Yes. Two bodyguards. Dot uh, Com, who was played by Kevin Brown, was once his manager. And uh, Grizz is just a friend of his, I guess. I think I think that what we don't know as as fans of the show, as fans of comedy, is that probably every time we see Tracy Jordan or Tracy Morgan we are seeing a character. Mm -hmm. He's putting on a character, even in interviews, even in behind the scenes footage, he is in, in some way putting some type of a, like a shield up and playing some kind of a character because I think he's just a true lover of comedy. And for him, it's probably fun. So I have a feeling we have not even met the real Tracy Morgan in anything, uh, which makes this so crazy because I, I sent this to Kate when we were doing our research, but I was reading in the Rolling Stone um, article where, which kind of documented the last like month of filming the series. This is something that he says, and this is, I'm giving you the full context. 
Good times, bad times, ugly times, Morgan muses. Awards fun, looking forward to spring. It'll never happen again. I can't explain. And I was like, I felt like I was reading a riddle. He just like goes, <laughs> he is like living in his own mind, which is makes it so special that we get to observe it on this show, especially because you know that he was improvising so much. It feels like we kind of just get to steal like these like comedic genius moments from him and, and watch it on our television screens. Yeah, I think a lot of comedians are not what they portray. I mean, the, the yeah. difference between them and actors, right, is that like actors are obviously playing a role. We know they're playing a role and comedians are going up there with their own name. I mean, Tracy Jordan is a different name, but he, you know, can do stand up as well. And there is this perception that the person that I'm seeing is the actual person. Mm-hmm. And I, I have found for the most part that a lot of comedians are far darker than their onstage personas. Like it, they're not necessarily the most uh, fun group of people to hang out no, with. You, uh, yeah, you literally force yourself to laugh so you don't cry. <laughs> they're all exactly. like, it's so dark. I'm not trying to generalize, but they're all like either massively depressed or have like a substance abuse problem. I mean, and, and I you just can remember, cut that, but that's, <laughs> there's history behind those numbers. There's stats. I'm not like, I mean, I just remember being on the Metro North train and seeing John Mulaney and he just looked so sad. He just looked so sad. Now, I would also on Metro North, so I can't, <laughs> that yeah, there's crazy. enough there to, to dissect. I do have to say like, I've, and I've talked to my therapist about this. Like it is exhausting to always feel like you have to be on all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. I even feel like this is an only child. And I've told my parents this just in case my mom is listening <laughs> that, you know, you feel like you have to be the entertainment. And when you're a comedian, you are always on, people are always looking to you to be funny. And imagine how exhausting that is every single day to constantly have people, not only like your friends and family, but to have like fans coming up to you and saying, say something funny, you know, be funny. And that is probably so like emotionally, mentally exhausting. When I moved to a new city, I had no idea how to find a healthcare provider. It is so stressful. There are so many people out there and searching online just overwhelmed me and I couldn't ask my mom for help. I'm too old for that. I need to be independent. So that is when I found ZocDoc. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance. You can read verified patient reviews and shocker, I read every review there is because I want to know what I'm getting myself into. I want to make sure that I am comfortable with the person I'm going to see and that they can help me with what I'm seeing them for. You can also book an appointment in person or video chat, and you can do this all from the free ZocDoc app. All you need to do is just download the free ZocDoc app. It is the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. ZocDoc is making healthcare easy. I am telling you every month, millions of people are using ZocDoc. I am one of them. I was able to find a new physician, a new dentist, a new dermatologist, a new eye doctor, any specialist I may ever need. ZocDoc has me covered. It is my go-to whenever I need to see somebody. This is what you need to do. You need to go to ZocDoc.com slash TV watch repeat and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today, like now. So if you need to find somebody quick, you can use ZocDoc for this. That is ZocDoc.com slash TV watch repeat. Now is the time to prioritize your health.
otherwise in the cast, you know, Jack McBrayer was a friend of Tina's from uh, Second City in Chicago. So she just recruited him for the role and was thankful that nobody said no when she asked. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, let's go to like the writer's room here. So uh, Tina had a no assholes uh, policy in the writer's room, but it was a very, very tough environment, which is not unlike the series is inspired by, mm-hmm. um, you know, also for what it's worth, the set itself also mimicked the SNL directly. And it had hallways that were basically identical to SNL's hallways. And Tina said, it's almost as if after college, I moved into an apartment that looked exactly like my dorm. So that's how <laughs> similar it was. Uh, but writer uh, Tammy Sag- Sager, I hope I'm pronouncing that, pro- uh, pronouncing that correctly, said to LAist, I laughed really hard. We got very little sleep. A lot of 30 Rock was crazy hours. We would sometimes go until nine in the morning. We would go to Tina's apartment and write from there because she was burning her candle at every end. Uh, we would work weekends. It was a very intensive show hour wise, but it was also super fun. The writer's room, it was all, to fl- all of us laughing really hard, even as we desperately wanted to go home and sleep. <laughs> this sounds very much like SNL. So it seems to me that she took all the lessons that she learned in the writer's room at SNL and brought it to this sitcom. But one of the differences being that, you know, at SNL, you get the summers off. Right. <laughs> You're like a teacher. Yeah, exactly. You also, um, you know, once, once Saturday's done, you're done. Like that thing is done. You don't have any of these lingering things that are following you. It's just, it's over. Uh, so that did burn some people a little bit. Um, or when it came to burnout, it, it, you know, affected them. I can't imagine how exhausting this show was to produce because like you just said, SNL is, and the, the performers on SNL have spoken at length about just the grueling schedule that they have to endure for this on season, but, and then on the off season, them trying to squeeze in other projects that, you know, they feel like fulfilled by and all of that. But for this, like you are, I, I think like being a writer on SN or on 30 rock would be even more intimidating than being a writer on SNL, because you have to like almost double up your talent because you have to parody SNL but then also have to be good enough for it to be an actual television show. So it's not yeah. like you're just like making fun of it in a group text. You're like, oh no, this has to be double as good right? because it's going to be cast to everybody to watch. And especially because so many people have points of reference of SNL now too. We've seen documentaries, we've read books by uh, performers on the show that we have for having never been on SNL, I feel like I have a pretty solid working knowledge of Saturday Night Live. And so for especially also seeing 30 Rock, I would say that adds a huge element to how how comfortable I feel with the, the Saturday Night Live or sketch comedy scene, right. which is probably so disrespectful to everybody <laughs> who does it. No, but I get what you're saying. Like we, like, it's, it's not like we're seeing a brand new world that we've never seen. And so you have to make it believable for that person, which is again, why studio 60 was such an epic failure because it was like, you don't have these self-important people bloviating behind the scenes about like politics and then writing sketches that are inherently just really stupid and would never make it on air or past the writer's room even. Uh, but also, cause the other thing too, with the writer's room is like, they, the thing that made it a challenge is that they were writing for this new generation of TV too. Mm-hmm. They called like, they, they called it TiVo jokes, which is so dated in itself. They call it TiVo <laughs> jokes. But they, you know, they realized people are going to rewind things and try to look at things more carefully. And they even would see on the internet, people would like screen grab, um, you know, like Liz had a pro con list one episode and people were inspecting it and looking at it. So they said, we have to write in funny things in like the props. Like we have to do these little things here and there that people are going to notice as Easter eggs. 
and it'll make them laugh because they're going to inspect it fully and we want to rewatch it to be able to see that again. So I would say that too. I would say crazy. 30 Rock is probably one of the first shows that I was like quoting to my friends like regularly. Like my friends and I would be you know saying lines or or I like we sing Werewolf Bar Mitzvah all the time. <laughs> like there are so many bits from SNL or I'm sorry, from 30 Rock that like whenever I get hit, I always joke that I have hollow bones. I have avian bone syndrome, hollow bones. And, and I mean, these are all little things from 30 Rock that have just like become embedded in the, you know, my jokes with my friends that I don't think I was doing beforehand because, because the things were just so, so insane and so obscure that you held on to them much more than you would a joke that wasn't talking about a, you know, a a man becoming a wolf and a boy becoming a man. Yeah, I I agree. And I I mean, for me, I think it was Arrested Development was probably my very first, but, and it's very similar to this, like very much like hidden jokes and Easter eggs, but also repeated lines, that kind of thing. But this one felt inherently more relatable. Like I think that Tina writes herself in a way that you're like, oh, I feel like I am Liz Lemon. Like yeah, everybody you get Liz Lemon. thought she, they were Liz Lemon, you know? That's interesting because everybody else is such a heightened character. Uh, I mean, even Jack is completely unattainable for the majority of, of viewers. Like n- mm-hmm. nobody is this chairman of a network. Where's Gary? Gary's dead. I'm Jack Donaghy. New VP of development for NBCG Universal Kmart. We own Kmart now. No. So why are you dressed like we do? So to have all of these other heightened characters and then to have like one, maybe two characters that feel rooted in reality, it does become incredibly easy to identify with them and almost feel like you are going through this crazy world with them, which makes it just that much more entertaining. But to the point of relatability, something I read when I was researching was Jack McBriar talking about the relatability of the series in terms of geographically where you were living. Mm. I think that this show is very much a, dare I say, coastal elite. Yes, it is very coastal. And I, you know, having been a part of that, I can absolutely see it. But something he said was hardly anybody, uh, hardly anybody in Georgia watches it. It's a very specific taste. My family doesn't get it. They don't watch SNL. There's no references for them to grab onto. There's not a lot I can do to be like, oh, here's a crazy reference we're making because some of them I don't even get. Right. Which is, which is why, I mean, he's from Georgia and it is very true. Like you watch this and I think that and I don't mean this in, in, in any type of like an offensive way to middle America, but I think that the jokes are very much written for the coasts mm-hmm. and they, I think almost if anything leaned into that and were, went heavy handed on it at certain points. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of pop culture jokes. There's a lot of literally like New York jokes. Yeah. New York you, jokes. You, you appreciate 10 times more if you are in New York. And so standing online for a hot dog that we see oh, in the pilot, right. that, that alone. Even beyond just like coastal, I would say the bubble can even become smaller. I think it was almost written for comedy you writers. And me, just <laughs> like was, us. I think it I at some points, like you watch this show and you're like, 
I know that's a joke there. And I'm sure there is somebody who used to work at the SNL writing room who's probably on the floor laughing right now, but I'm not cool enough to know that joke. And it makes you want to be a part of it even more though, because you almost feel like you're missing out on it if you don't get it. Because especially, like I said earlier, knowing that the jokes were so jam-packed in there, 10 jokes a minute is you're not, you're just naturally not going to pick up on every single one of those. Right. Right. I mean, it's not going to be a friends. It's not going to be, you know, a King of Queens. Right. It's not going to be something that like, oh, everybody I mean, we can... could only, it could only wish it was King of Queens. <laughs> it's nothing that people could just grasp onto very easily. You can't have it on your background while you're eating and enjoy. You have to know. And, and that, you do. that's something that not everybody is, is ready to do. And unless you really love comedy and you really love SNL and you really love pop culture, which I ticked, all those boxes are ticked for me. So, yeah. And also like, I'm just even thinking too, the way that like, you know, when she gets jury duty and she goes as princess Leia, Mm -hmm. I don't really think it's fair for me to be in a jury because I can read thoughts. Like that is something that I think the normal fan would be like, that's funny. Like she's putting on a character, but then like I've done jury duty in New York and there are people who will show up as like the Spider-Man from Times Square because that's their job. (laughs) And you, there's like layers to it where I think the closer you are to this world, the probably funnier the show is to you but you can appreciate it at whatever level you're at. Unless you're, I guess, apparently from Georgia, in which case Given your Jack, Jack McBriar has said it is not for you. <laughs> I mean, they even thought like, Tina thought even in season one, she's like, there's no way this lasts beyond one season. She nicknamed yeah. one episode, Goodbye America, because she was <laughs> like, it's not gonna go any further than this, that's it. But, um, but it did get a boost in 2008 because of the presidential election. So we know when John McCain announced Alaska's Sarah Palin as his running mate, Jeff mm-hmm. Richmond turned to Tina and said, huh, she looks a lot like you. So he might've been the first person who pointed out, but he definitely wasn't the last because everybody started talking about that. Everyone's like this Sarah Palin, she looks just like Tina Fey. Oh my God, Tina Fey has to go on SNL. She has to go and play this character. It almost was as if she just didn't even have a choice. Like yeah. it, it, she had to do it or else like everybody would be very upset with her specifically. She was being called. <laughs> my fellow Americans. (laughs) I was so excited when I was told Senator Clinton and I would be addressing you tonight. But it didn't necessarily, you know, lead to significant uptick in ratings for 30 Rock, but it helped the show get some buzz because it became this place. Now people knew Tina Fey doing Sarah Palin. Now everyone knows about 30 Rock. Now all these celebrities want to be on the show because it's a well-written show and people are talking about it and talking about her. So they all wanted to get on it. And the way that they preferred to go about it on the show was to um, write this, write a guest, write a role for a celebrity rather than have the celebrity come in and ask for a role and get it written for them, mm-hmm. which made it just more organic material in the first place. So I think that's why you see people like Brian Williams showing up, you know, like, it's not like Brian Williams, is like, get me on the show. They're looking at NBC and seeing who can we take from around Yeah. Them and put on. Um, and the only person that did get through simply by asking was Jerry Seinfeld. Interestingly. Interesting. The other thing I find fascinating about the conversation surrounding this show is that, you know, we know that Tina considers herself a feminist and we know that it is, seems to be a left-leaning show, 
but 30 it's Rock not. has, it's also, yes, it is sort of been accused of being pro-conservative. Oh, it's very conservative. I, they, <laughs> and this was in um, the Rolling Stone piece, but like it made a great point, or maybe it was in the mental floss thing that uh, Jack is often right. Yeah. And he is the conservative one. And it is kind of, it is fun though, to see you know, at the end of the day, it's not like this is like a moral compass kind of thing. You know, it's just like right. they get in these sticky situations. And the guy that I think you would probably be more inclined to disagree with is the right one, which makes it even funnier. Right. Which I think if this were to be made today, I don't, I don't think that would have been allowed. I don't either. <laughs> I don't think that would have been allowed. And I also think that like, uh, yeah, it's, it is, it, the way they tiptoe around it, because it's never really super explicit. I mean, we have, I think we all know, like happy holidays inside the card is for terrorists. Merry Christmas from Jack and Avery. That is their Christmas <laughs> card. And it's so good. I mean, that is so good because you feel like you understand the parody of it, you know, yes. yeah. um, which is what makes it so enjoyable. But that is one of my favorite moments. <laughs> I mean, Tina says that the only agenda of the show is, as she says, quote, pro-obedience, which I also mm. would say is a little bit of a conservative mentality as well. Mm. But as somebody who always follows the rules, I, 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 I identify with that. <laughs> I was really interested in um, finding out that Alec Baldwin wanted off the show around yes. season five, I think. And that's where I mentioned it earlier in the episode. But he has said that, you know, the writing was bad, but even bad writing on 30 Rock is still great writing on any other TV show. Uh, but in terms of, and I think we, we can tiptoe into this in a moment. Uh, he says that he thinks that Tina lost some of her like sparkle when she had her second child. And uh, it was a How quote. How do you feel about his point. wife? Who has I had, like, well, that's what I said. You're like, dozen. at that point you have quite literally 85 in the world. So I don't know who's throwing stones at glass houses. We have houses Duggars here. and we have Baldwins. Like that's all we have left in this universe. I know. Um, but he did and then. So season five, he felt like it was not great. He was ready to leave in a year. And then season six was in his mind, fantastic. So then he decided I'm not going anywhere. And towards the end, he even offered to cut his salary to keep the show going. So this is, I mean, it well, makes sense. He wanted to stay in New York because he met his wife in New York and his wife was probably like, I want 10 billion babies. And so he's like, shit, I got to make, I got to make that money. They didn't meet in Spain. Consider the source. Uh, also, one thing before we get into the internalized misogyny of Tina Fey, I do have to say, and I would love to test you on this, Kate, I was reading about how how hard the comedy and the jokes are in this show because they have to be quick. Mm -hmm. And in one article, they mentioned that um, Jane Krakowski was working on a tongue twister in a scene where she says, I have this weird, sick feeling in my stomach, like that time I drank antifreeze to frame Jose Canseco for my murder. And then Jane Krakowski says, we've all started speaking so quickly. You really have to know your lines because if you don't say them fast enough, they'll be cut. And it made me think about the delivery of that line. And I caught myself saying it out loud to try to see how quickly I could say that sentence. Because if you do say it slowly, it does absolutely not fit into 30 Rock. Jenna was such like she would spit out the most insane stories. And I kind of almost feel like in hindsight, now that I'm thinking about it, the same way that Alexis and Schitt's Creek has such a 
crazy history that you only get little nuggets of because she just throws in like that time I was abducted on a Somali pirate ship. Right. And that is so Jenna Maroney. It really is. And then you're just like, what is her story? I'm going to tell you what I told Phil Spector. It's going to be okay, baby. We just have to get some trash bags and get back here before anyone's the wiser. Then we can keep recording my album. And I'm sure there are articles I'm sure there are articles of every side story that Jenna has mentioned, (laughs) but I mean, Kate, I would implore you to try to say this line as quick as possible in the 30 rock cadence that we all, you know, know and love because it is hard. I tried it. I just messaged it to you so you can try it. Okay. I have this weird, sick feeling in my stomach. Like that time I drank antifreeze to frame Jose Canseco for my murder. That's good. I actually got through it, but I can yeah. see it is hard. Antifreeze is, and Jose Conseco is a little bit of a mouthful. Especially when you're also like not reading it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> I was like closing my eyes trying to it. do it, but it does make sense too. If you are not quick enough, like your line gets cut. And I think for them, especially like that would be, that's terrible. Like the, that all also they have reminds are these me lines. of SNL in that, like everything is like, if you don't make this short enough, you will get cut for time. And yeah. it's, it's this constant pressure that just continues. And it's, it's so interesting how it flows over from a show that is so different, right? Like sketch comedy, live sketch comedy is very different than a 20 minute sitcom. Do you remember watching the live, ep- the live episodes? Oh yeah. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever to see that these characters that I love so much because I watched the East coast and then I stayed up for the West coast version Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I, they changed things and it was so fun. And I mean, it was really an, it's such an innovative show. And I think there have been a lot of people who have tried to impersonate it and very few that have succeeded at it. Yeah. Who has? I mean, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is the same people. And that's the thing. It's coming from the same same people. So it's hard to even think about ever since 30 Rock, has there been that sort of quick-witted, like, um, you know, fast comedy? And and I think, like, there there are comedies that I think have learned from it a little bit. Like, I think a little bit of Good Place has a little bit of this in it. You you know, you have, like, those throwaway lines from Tahani and everything that are very, you know, Jenna Maroney-esque or whatever. And and there's some, you know- A lot of inspiration picked up from them. Yeah, but definitely nothing that feels- When was Arrested Development? That was 2003, 2004, something like that. So yeah. Because I get similar, I got similar vibes from just like rewatching the pilot. And we haven't even talked about the pilot. The crazy thing about the pilot is I never remembered that Jack was new. The people upstairs think so. That's why they promoted me. That's why they sent me here to retool your show. Retool what now? I'm the new vice president of East Coast Television and Microwave Oven Programming. Yeah, I didn't either. And then also you had things like Josh was more of a presence than yeah, he Josh ever faded becomes. away. And it didn't feel as quick as it became. Like it definitely was a slower pace. No, there was one line that really got me though, which is. <laughs> Hi, uh, what are you doing down here? I'm known for being hands-on. Clearly. That's how you should dress for work, by the way. Uh, yeah, if I was president of the Philippines. That one killed me. Oh, also, also, do you think Twofer is the Colin Jost? James Spurlock, but we call him Twofer because with him you get a two for one. He's a black guy and a Harvard guy. Like there is, there's, there's always a Harvard lampooner. Yes, he is. He is Jostian. <laughs> that is, that is Jostian. Sure. <laughs> I'm going to run with that with, for my fellow Josters. But yeah, I mean, I love like, I mean, Tracy is fantastic in it. His line of like. I'll have an apple juice. Oh, we don't have apple juice, sir. Then I'll take a vodka and tonic. 
so good. It's a great introduction. Is um, there a, um, is there a line that has, you feel like has almost just become normal for you to use in your like day-to-day? I mean, I've definitely have used the night cheese line, like a little bit. I, much, I think about night so cheese basic. all the time. It's no, so basic, no, though. don't take it. But it's what I like, have. You're known time. for cheese. Yeah. Like you, you are cheese. <laughs> I am cheese. You are cheese. But that one, I, that doesn't surprise me for me. I, and this started because my, a lot of girls in my sorority would say this. And then it just like, once you're in like surrounded by it all the time, but there's an episode and I don't even remember what episode, but it's when, um, I think it's Tracy says like, you know, he swears on his mother's grape and then he would give somebody a million doll hairs. And we say, I still, to this day, say doll hairs instead of dollars when I'm saying something. And it's (laughs) so random. And I, until because I haven't watched this show in so long until putting it back on. I, it like kind of all started coming back to me that I'm like, wow, I say that I say, all oh, my hollow bones. I I think about the Christmas card all the time. There's so much that I just have still held close to me that I didn't even remember was specifically 30 rock, and which is still, a compliment. And it still is just so delightful, but, but yeah, no, I do. I do want to talk a little bit about this. Cause I think that there's something so we saw, we opened this whole Take a deep breath. <laughs> we epi- opened this whole episode with the, of course, the sketch about the Pam, the overly confident, morbidly obese woman. That's, that's played for laughs, which is very 2008. And I understand that. And then we have throughout that pilot episode too, uh, you know, Jack says, I hate skinny women. So there's another thing about bodies. And then, you know, he's, she said, what are you going to guess my weight now? You don't want me to do that. And then later on, he also then says, oh, you're about 127 pounds. Yeah. Which, first of all, like, I also love this, this lining this up as if like, you know, oh, she's just this like disgusting creature. Right. And she's like 127 pounds. Like that is, that is very, 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 very small and conventionally, you know, considered to be, yes. Like that is what, that is what people would strive to be, you know, and, and when you read a lot of these interviews with Tina at the time, it, it is shocking to me, especially this Vanity Fair interview that I read, uh, which was a profile of her about, I would say 75% of the profile focused on her and her appearance and how it's changed and how she's been, she's become so hot now and how she was just this like horrible troll that needed to lose. (laughs) Like she watched herself on TV and was like, Oh my God, I need to lose 30 pounds. I'm so disgusting. And so she lost all the weight and now she's being rewarded for that with all of this, this show and the success. And now she's beautiful and everything. And you know, when you read the, 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 the shocking thing to me, is like, it's, that's not crazy that you read a profile like that, because you mm-hmm. know, that a lot of, you know, journalists back then would take that line and it would be kind of like, you know, it, it would seem it was the writer's fault more than anything else. Sure. But she, she's, she leans into this, like she is a hundred percent into this conversation and it, it is so at odds with what she is presenting herself as, as, you know, the, this, this feminist figure. And I know we've, we, there has been a lot in the last 10 years about, you know, Tina as a, as a problematic feminist figure. And you could even argue in the pilot that her, you know, trying to get the strippers to go to computer class is sort of, um, you know, disrespecting uh, people who are strippers or sex workers or whatever. And, and that whole conversation that definitely was not happening in 2008, but it's just shocking to me the way that the show even bleeds into that. 
Yeah. And it's sort of like creating this line of, isn't this woman disgusting? And isn't this woman hot? Yeah. And under the guise of comedy. Yes. But it was certainly not necessarily comedy because it was either bleeding into or bleeding from real life. (laughs) Right. Right. I don't know which direction the river flowed in that situation. And that's the only thing when I'm watching that I'm just like, oh, like, I don't, like, I get, I understand why the joke is there and it's supposed to be a layer of relatability. Absolutely. But, um, but, and this profile too, I, you need, you guys need to read it because it is stunning to read it. And I remember reading it back in the day and not coming away with the perspective that I do today. Mm -hmm. So that shows you how much like everything has changed and how much we've learned. But, you know, there's this quote from Alec Baldwin in there that is presented just as like, Here's a quote from Alec Baldwin. There's nothing wrong with this. This is, you know, this is part of the narrative. And he says, I would never say things to her, never giving her advice. She's a woman you don't easily give advice to. She's very self-reliant. I'd say to her, you know, you're a really beautiful girl. You've got to play that. It's a visual medium. This is not Upright Citizens Brigade where we'd be doing sketch comedy at nine o'clock at night on Sunday for a bunch of drunken college students. You are a very attractive woman and you've got to work on that. You've got to pop one more button on that blouse and you've got to get that hair done and you've got to go just glamour it up. And it just was like, ooh, can you imagine if he said that? Alec Baldwin would say that today. He actually would say that today. That is just, that is his person. Consider the source, I guess. That's an evergreen comment from Alec Baldwin. And that was the seamless way of bringing in consider the source. Consider the source. (laughs) Yeah, I think that it's so crazy because, um, hmm. I think women in comedy at this point, especially being a female showrunner, a female showrunner of a comedy series was, I wonder how much of it is like, she felt like she needed to play the game and just like turn her blind eye to stuff like that. Uh, And if anything, be able to make it a joke on her TV show. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the thing that makes me sad is that it feels like it was very much like she is a product of the time. She feels like this is what has been subtly conveyed to all women throughout, you know, the decades. And it pointed to me a a deep rooted insecurity in a way Mm -hmm. that kind of made me sad more than anything else. Tina, Uh, are you okay? Are you okay? Tina, Tina, if you're listening, we know you're listening, (laughs) reach out. No, I hear you though. I think that, um, yeah, I think that like we have, so I guess I'm not that familiar with, and this is probably like totally my fault of like the maybe problematic feminism of Tina Fey in the recent years. But I think that you can definitely see there were like, there were the rebuttals on the show. And then there was also like one step forward, two steps back kind of thing with what would they would present, you know? So she would get a really good slam, but then again, Jack would be right. And she would be left like the the lowly woman all Mm -hmm. by herself you know, and be down one. Right. Yeah. And it is very self-deprecating. And the question is, is it self-deprecating to the scent, to the point of being, um, of putting women in their place more than anything else? Yeah. I think ultimately, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think ultimately it's not, but, but I think that that dynamic is still being played out there. The man knows best. The man is the boss. And, you know, this is the woman is the bumbling idiot who, uh, you know, is just trying to get through the day and through her life and, and everything. Just trying to do her best. Right. That's and- really the definition of Liz Lemon. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, at the same time, 
I don't want to make it about that because it is such a fun, funny, amazing show. I know. And it, is, it is, like I said, delightful. And I, and I hate bringing a 2021 mentality to something that was yeah. 2008 in this regard, because what it did was so much better than what it didn't do or what it did wrong that um, I think it's worth celebrating more than it's worth yeah. sort of like going through the minutia. I just found, I found this profile shocking and I think people should just read it. I think it'll make you feel better about where we are today. You will be hard pressed to find a show, a comedy show that can withstand the test of time when it comes to uh, taste level, I guess, you know, and I think 30 Rock was already pushing the boundaries at that time because that's what made it funny. Mm -hmm. And it naturally just tipped over the scale Mm -hmm. in 2021. But yeah, we don't need to, we don't need to crucify it. I learned a lot from 30 Rock as not only a writer, but as a comedy appreciator, as a, as a person, I learned to never go to a a second location with a hippie. (laughs) I learned can't do fireworks in midtown Manhattan. Uh, It's just, it's so good. What's crazy is I learned from my research that in 2019, they were actually looking into continuing and doing a continuation series with Alec Baldwin Hmm. about Jack as the mayor of New York city. The (laughs) negotiations fell through and the role and had new producers on it. And the role was given to Ted Danson, relocated and named Hmm. Mr. Mayor. Oh, wow. So it actually happened. (laughs) It it happened. It just happened in a completely different form with a different character and different producers. It's Which just is like the way didn't that most, most Hollywood projects seem to sort of uh, evolve. Evolve. Yeah. Um, I've got I've got fun facts. I would love to hear them. Uh, okay, so Tina and her husband Jeff Richmond fell in love during a date to Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. Have you been there? Of course, I have. That's where Sue is. Is, is it romantic? Um, I mean, the, there's a dinosaur, so yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, Tina hates feet. And thinks her feet are ugly and she even sleeps in socks. Yeah. I remember that from her book. (laughs) That is upsetting to me. Sleeping in socks. I agree. I think people who sleep in socks are demonic. (laughs) Childhood friends say that Tina was the Janice in high school. Speaking of mean girls, which I could totally see. Alec Baldwin says he's a little bit of a, a little bit more of a snob than he was before he started because of playing Jack Donahue. He said, if I see someone who thinks he's something and I look at his clothes and I say, why are you wearing that shirt with that tie? That looks stupid. Why are you wearing saddle color shoes with a gray suit? You're not a musician. So he basically- I have a fun fact about his clothes. Yes. Do you have this? Probably we're going to say it. He He bought all of them. Yeah. (laughs) This is so, it's a, I was, that Alec Baldwin bought all of Jack's suits when the show ended. Supposedly he just liked the wardrobe enough that he wrote one big check to NBC and he just wanted to look good. So when we see Alec Baldwin, he could be wearing a Jack Donahue suit. Uh, Tina does not allow jokes about Mayor McCheese because young people won't understand it. Who? Mayor McCheese. Who's that? I guess Did I just prove right. her point? Well, she's I've never heard people, of this. At the time, she said nobody under the age of 36 will understand it. I was definitely in my 20s and I knew who Mary McCheese was, but I guess. I how guess, old are you now, though? Well, I'm 36 now, but it there didn't it is. back then. There it is. And I'm under 36. No, it's an evergreen number. Mayor McCheese is, is one of the McDonald's characters. Excuse me? Do you not know that McDonald's has characters? I know that it has. No, I know it has the Hamburglar. Yeah, the Hamburglar, Mary McCheese, Grimace. 
Are you saying mayor, like Mr. Mayor? Yes, he was a big burger and he had, uh, his head was a giant burger and then he had a body and he had like a mayor's like. um, I am turning over this. I've never heard of that. I only know the Hamburglar and Ronald McDonald. Mayor McCheese, when did he go out of fashion? I I thought he was still being used. You think he's still in rotation? I think he, I mean, I think all they hand out is like Moana dolls now. (laughs) Such a shame. I miss the old, the old McDonald's creatures. Uh, So I mentioned Tina Fey. So Tina Fey hated the love interest scenes, but Mm -hmm. she wanted Peter Dinklage to play uh, a boyfriend of hers. Oh, interesting. Actually happened. Um, Donald Glover was a writer on the show mm-hmm. uh, in case you didn't know that. And of course went on to great fame. And he what helped- has he like not done? It's so crazy to me. I know he's had like a, a, a huge music career, a big TV career. Yeah, it's cr- Like, and good in all of it. Yeah. Like that's like a sushi restaurant that also serves like pizza. It's like one of those isn't going to be good, but he, he is good at both sushi and pizza. At the end of season two, Liz was supposed to adopt a child who would steal from her and then vanish, but that <laughs> didn't happen. That's like, um, do you remember that news story a couple years ago about a couple that was adopt that adopted a, it's very much like orphan. orphan? The movie orphan. Okay, are you th- are no, you but orphan? this is a real story. And like, she tried to kill like the mom or something like oh, that. God. And it was exactly the same situation. They thought she was five and they think she was actually like 18. Oh my God. So it does happen. Yeah, it happens. Oh man. Uh, Jenna and Pete were supposed to date. Interesting. Uh, Jeff Richmond, I mentioned did the music for 30 rock and unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which I would say unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt's theme theme song song is one of the best theme songs in television history. I totally agree. Good. So good. Uh, if you look in Tina in Liz's office, you will see some pictures, uh, including pictures of Tina and Don Pardo, who is the guy who does the, um, Saturday did. Night Live announcing or did until he passed, uh, Faye's daughter and Amy Poehler on the cover of bust. <laughs> That's funny. In one episode, Tina sings a made up Christopher Cross song and Christopher Cross actually watched the episode and finished the song after seeing that episode. And that's why James Marsden's character is named Chris, uh, Cross. Chris Cross, named after him in, in uh, honor. Uh, so was- I always thought that that was like Chris Cross make you want to jump, Chris. jump, jump. Yeah. No, the, the other, the more lame version. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> and they're both pretty lame though. Uh, so werewolf bar mitzvah was inspired by black eyed peas. I got a feeling. What? <laughs> that's what, that's what they said. I did not see that coming. That's, Oh God. I love that. I mean, it's like 10 seconds, but it's so good. The impact oh, of werewolf bar mitzvah. I had missed this when we were talking about some of the internalized misogyny, but uh, oh there was somebody who was talking in an Esquire interview with Tina Fey. The interviewer said, I listened to Alec Baldwin's commentary on the 30 Rock DVD. I liked his theory about the show's success. Tina says, oh, that all the girls have all their jugs out. And the writer says, including you, he says, your blouse is always unbuttoned. Tina, yes, that's a secret to our low ratings. I pad them. I rig them up. I can't believe Alec Baldwin. I can't believe him. But you should be. <laughs> this know, is not surprising. Is he is. Uh, and then my last little thing here is that I guess Aaron Sorkin asked to spend time backstage at NBC, but Lauren Michaels declined, not because necessarily 30 Rock, but because he didn't like the association of this behind the scene politics on the show being featured on mm. Aaron Sorkin's show. 
So you got to put the work in to get the behind the scenes knowledge. Sure do. Sure do. Well, Kate, let's ask ourselves the question that we ask every episode of TV Watch Repeat. Was this better than the OC? No, I actually would. I'd say the series itself is absolutely a thousand percent better, but I yeah. think that the pilot was kind of just like, it, it wasn't as good as it, as it, it wasn't as memorable. It yeah. was, it wasn't as memorable, but it is, it, it is an iconic series. And for a show that is so, that has so many catchphrases, not one was in the pilot was in the pilot. I mean, yeah. Cause what does, you know, again, I watched this a while ago. So the girly show becomes TB. What is it? TGS. TGS. Oh, so it was, okay. The girly show TGS. Okay. That makes sense. Um, one thing I was thinking about was the, cause I was watching the best of clips. Another thing that I just have to say is one of the best episodes I think is when Liz gets her book deal and slowly and gets a TV show for deal breaker mm-hmm. and it becomes like, starts funneling into the Jenna of, of television, but for like self-help right and she gets the terrible haircut and she starts crying out of her mouth and it is absolutely and she looks like a troll on camera because it's hd it's liz lemon goes hd it is it is just proof that this show went absolutely it went so far insane that it just worked mm-hmm. it, and that's what i think like this, they did so well that sometimes it's like you have to just fully commit to being a batshit crazy show and then it works but if you even hesitate at one moment you jump that go it's not gonna work so good though well you guys we have to talk about what we're gonna be watching next week which will be survivor Woo! so excited for this one it's finally coming back after a way too long hiatus is it really yes oh i didn't know that wait you didn't know it's coming back that's why i said i had no idea it's the end of september oh my god i'm so excited (laughs) I'm so excited because guess what? I thought that they were the only show that really could have worked. Oh, during I know. the pandemic, you go on an island. You're yeah. like you're that. The whole brother. point is being stranded. Yes, it's wild. It's wild to me that it didn't happen. But, but no, this will be it'll be perfect fun. timing, and mm-hmm. we we will be back with Survivor. Can't wait. Get your lost vibes, and then take a break. Go back to New York, and then we'll go back to an island and wonder <laughs> if they'll ever get off. And the season one is a good season. Oh my God. And I can't wait to watch it. It's going to be early 2000s. It's going to be Mm -hmm. just like, you know, reality TV in its infancy. And that's always my favorite thing to watch. Yeah. But yet Jeff Probst has an aged day. He has an aged day. He's got a great doctor. Until (laughs) you guys, until next week, we will leave you with this clip. You can. I know that was hard, but I bet you wouldn't give up this week with Miss LaRoche Vanderhoot for anything. No, I wouldn't. Not for a billion doll hairs. I'm sorry, did you say doll hairs? Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere where and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus